Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us Dr. Tony Barron. He's a friend and mentor to Pastor Michael. He's the leader in our family of churches and was a pastor for many years. He just retired... So, as dean of Azusa Seminary, San Diego campus, and he's only, the only person I know that has two doctorates. He's an amazing thinker, author, and Christian leader, Dr. Tony Barron. <laughs> Can I pray for you? Yeah. So, if you are willing, just to extend your hand as we pray for Tony for the message. Lord Jesus, we just pray for Tony, and we ask that you would just anoint him right now, that the word of God would come through him, and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ would come. And I pray that hearts would be open to hear what he has to say. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dennis. This morning, we're going to focus our thoughts on the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. It's been about six months, seven months that since I've been with you last. I was on a little bit of sabbatical, so grateful to be here, and I hope that Ansley and Michael are, are having a good time and a restful time away, away from us during that, during that time. Can we pray again? Father, I had a genuine sense as I entered this assembly with these beautiful, wonderful folks of two things. One is that nearly all of them care so deeply for you that they would do anything. They would actually not only admire you, but they would take up their cross and follow you. The other sense, Father, that I heard from you is that there are some that are here that have deep, profound needs, some emotional and some physical And so I ask, Lord Jesus, that whatever that need is, that you as the king would speak to them so that they would hear your voice and that they indeed would see your power within their lives. In the midst of the wounds that we have, many times, Father, we don't even know that we're not holding things back in our own lives. So I ask, Lord, that we would lower our walls to hear your word, to celebrate, Father, your communion, and to grow in your grace more so than ever before. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Needless to say, I'm not a prophet, nor even the son of the prophet. In fact, the only prophetic gift I have sometimes when you talk to a theologian has nothing to do with the idea about foretelling, like you would in terms of some prophetic utterances. My gift sometimes is foretelling in terms of the gift of preaching. So you don't have to worry this morning who I'm, I'm going to tell you who's going to win the Super Bowl today because I have no clue. But I am going to make a prediction I am going to make a prediction of what I've been observing for the last 10, 20, even 30 years within the culture that we are living in, 
that we have entered in this period of time a movement that is transferred from the age of anxiety to the age of rage. Have you noticed that? That anxiety has subsumed itself under the case. And Paul Tillich wrote a wonderful book called The Courage to Be and dealing with all the anxiety we have in life. But what I'm beginning to see within our culture that was beginning to grow in the 1960s and developing to our present day, that you see evident in terms of the political systems that we are living in, the universities that should be a marketplace of ideas, you're seeing riots and you're seeing people being hurt, you're seeing all those things that are being done. We have moved as a culture from the age of anxiety to the age of anger. Now, some of the people do not live their life in outward rage all the time. What they'll do is hyperbole. They'll use words. They use social media when they're uh, anonymous. But you can hear the rage that is within them as they begin to take their account and talk about certain things in life that totally lack of some sense of civility. Are you with me? And we're beginning to see that this is not only going into certain segments of the population, but we're seeing that it's almost covering the entire country that we live in, things that have been evident long ago around the entire world. And what we see is that this rage, this interior pressure valve that often can be within every human being, sometimes is not exploited but it's internalized. So no wonder depression is at its highest level than it's ever been. No wonder are we seeing suicidal ideation for those that are 16, 17, and 18 in this age of meaningless that we have. And what they're exploring is this sense of learned helplessness and this anger because we live in such a secular society that we live in today. So let me ask you a very prominent question, is how does a Christian live in that environment? How does a Christian live in this and lead in this age of rage? How are they to encounter in such a way that we can be a a positive influence around the world that we have? Because God has called us this moment and this time to make a very unique difference in the world around us. I've could have chosen several passages of scripture to assist us in understanding of how to deal biblically with the age of rage that we live in. But the reality is, I could have chose, for example, uh, be angry and sin not. Don't let your sun go down upon your anger that you have. But it seems to me if I just, I just told you to stop it in terms of anger or the world to stop it, they're not going to hear, are they? It almost reminds me of this old Bob Newhart uh, YouTube now that you see that he can solve everybody's problem in five minutes. And you just have to pay $20. And so people come in with this problem saying, yes, I, I have this fear, this phobia. I don't know what to deal with it. And he listens very intently and saying, okay, I want you to uh, think about what I'm going to say. And, and then the lady would say, what should I do with this? And should I write it down? He says, well, nope, not really. It's kind of short. And she said, okay, what do I need to do with all this phobia? And and Newhart says, stop it. 
stop it. And somehow that's where we try to provide to the solution in the world around us. But there's more to it for us as a child of God. Because this morning I want to talk about not how just we overcome on a personal level in this age of anxiety that's been subsumed to the age of rage, but how do we lead? How do we become people of influence? Now that's a very important question because the Apostle Paul could have been a person of rage, could he not? Particularly in the book of Ephesians. He was in prison. He was under house arrest. And it's not the same kind of house arrest that you and I would experience if a court ruled against us. You know, the one that says, you know, they put the, uh, those clamps around your ankle, or so I've been told. I don't know by experience <laughs> around there. And so you begin to put those clamps around you. And as you put these clamps around you, uh, we think that's what Paul did. No, Paul was actually attached to a Roman soldier. And that everything that he did, the Roman soldier was next to him. Most people would see a crisis in their particular life, but of course the Apostle Paul saw it as an opportunity, didn't he? And as he saw this as a great opportunity, what he began to realize, he wrote letters. And one of the letters that he wrote that he desired to write to the people were to the city, the community of Ephesus. But Paul wasn't always that great saint, If you looked at his life before he became a Christian, one of the things you notice about the Apostle Paul when he was called Saul, he was involved with homicide against other Christians. In fact, the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, he ravaged the Christian community. He approved of persecuting the Christians in their faith. Paul was very much a person of intense rage against people that he thought were violating what was important to him. And now the Apostle Paul knows what to do to overcome all this. The second aspect that we need to understand is not only that Paul was transformed and and used these principles we're going to talk about, but the context of the city of Ephesus was important. I know some scholars would say Ephesus at the time was about 200,000 people. Most recent scholarship indicates that probably there are between 400,000 to 500,000 people that lived in Ephesus. It was considered a city on the move. It was an area that was well known for the worship of the goddess Diana, right? The goddess of fertility. It was a city that was built uh, built upon silversmiths and other people making these false idols within the world. And yet there was a simmering rage that was going under with the Jewish people that lived there, the people that were so tied to status and to power and to the Christians that were coming into that community. So much so that we read later in Acts chapter 17, a riot ensued. Because so many people were coming to know Christ, and the people were worried that their revenue would be taken. So how do you handle this? How did Paul, when he's in prison, begin to talk to you and me in terms of dealing with this age of rage and, and telling the Christians they have everything they need? 
That's why if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through verse 14. And one of the things you realize about this, if you know your Greek New Testament, verses 3 through verse 14 is simply one sentence in the Greek. Isn't that amazing? It seemed like the Apostle Paul got carried on so much about all the blessing, the word we get for eulogy. He was blessing God so much that was there, he couldn't stop, he couldn't even put a period because he was praising what God was doing in verses 3 to 14. If some people were to outline this particular passage, they would begin to see that Paul was very much concerned about the character and the culture of the church. And he wanted this particular church in Ephesus to spread this letter to other churches around so that their culture would change and not be like the culture that is in the world. Let me read this for you. And listen, if you have a pencil or something, listen to all the things that the Father provides for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Even as he chose, in fact, I'll read it here, I have it in New America. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of the will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you see all the verbs? Did you see the intensity that he elected us? He chose us. He predestined us. He lavished his love upon us. He gave us everything that we need. And when Paul was writing this letter to Ephesians, what he was creating for us is a new society. He was saying in the midst of ages of anxiety or ages of rage that happen in society, the church is designed to be a new society. And so he starts, the only way that you and I can have a new society is that we have to start with a new life. And that new life is understanding what the Father has elected us, bestowed upon us, and how the Son has redeemed us, and how the Holy Spirit guaranteed us in such a way. And so in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he begins, he begins to teach us some theological truth, doctrines, as it will. And then the last three chapters, he begins to talk to us about the duty that we have. One is principle, the other is practice in the way that we live. Paul knew that if we were to survive in a culture, and if we were to create a new kind of culture, there are things that we need to know what God has given you and me. 
And the first thing we need to know is that the Father has given you all the roots, everything that you and I need to live in this world. Everything. That the Father has chosen us at this point, at this time, to be everything that you need to be a witness for Jesus Christ and to live in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, not only did the Father elect you and choose you and lavish his love, if you notice that passage is said in him, in him. Who's in him referring to? Christ. It is not only the Father gives you the root system to be able to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, the root system for you to deal with any conflict, the root system to respond as opposed to react, he gives you the right ingredient of food that is for us to do that, we need to live in Christ. How do you live in Christ? Galatians 2.20 helps us, doesn't it? Living in Christ means you're no longer living for self or living in self. Living in Christ says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but what? Christ who lives within me. And the life I live now, I live by faith. That is, Paul points out in the first chapter of Ephesians that we have everything to need to walk the life of the new kingdom here on earth. And so he proceeds to tell us about this new life, this new society, the new relationships, everything that we have in the context before us. In Ephesians, he even talks about the new standards of unity and purity where we need to live and be part of. So if God the Father provides us with the deep roots for everything in the stability in the storms of rage by blessing us and choosing us and loving us and predestining us. Now, I know some of you go to seminary and some of you are theologically uh, focused on these words and you hear the word predestined and you're thinking, oh my, are we dealing with five-point Calvinism here? Are we dealing with Wesleyan theology? All those things. For those who don't know, don't worry about it. I only just spoke to maybe three or four people there. But the reality is, is that you have been predestined for a purpose. That before the foundation of the world, God called you for a unique purpose to be in this role. To be the witness and to be the light for the entire world around you that he signed you up and that he gave you every tool that you and I need to be successful. Are you with me? And then when he says, God, the son gives you the right food for having this new culture and that right food is living in Christ, trusting in him and all the things that are done. And what he's trying to create for the people of Ephesus is this great sense of humility this beautiful condition where you allow God to be in control of your life. That's scary sometimes, isn't it? I mean, seriously. That, and humility's idea of, one, accepting reality correctly and being grounded, is a sense of saying, Lord, I, I give you my life. 
not my will, thy will be done. If you uplift me, it's your will. If you decide not to, it is your will. If you put me before hundreds, it's your will. And if you want me at times in a season to be quiet and alone, it's your will. That the world is constantly jumping around and getting excited and trying to manipulate for power, jockeying for position in society. But for the Christian, they know they don't have to jockey for position in society. They just have to live in Christ. And then when you look at verses 11 through verse 12, you see the whole context of the very end, 11 through 14, you begin to see the third factor. Not only does the Father elect you, lavish gifts upon you, not only does the Son redeem you and gives you everything that you need by living in Christ, he says, I provided you a guarantee that each one of you that are followers of Jesus Christ are sealed. A guarantee of everything that I've done for you. Now, if that's true, what happened to the church? Are you with me? If, if that's true, why are there some communities of faith that seem to be all hot and bothered by life? Why are some Christians all hot and bothered by the anxieties that we encounter about life? I'm not saying you shouldn't be human, but why is that true if God has provided you? I sometimes look at that passage, and I sometimes think in San Diego where we live, we'll often go to the harbor and ocean, we'll see seals. And I love these seals. I just watch them. And, and some days in San Diego, the weather's so bad, it goes back and forth, back and forth. The waves go over the seals. And I'm looking at these seals, and I'm thinking, if I was on there, I'd be a bit anxious. The seals not. They're not anxious at all. They're sitting there just being a seal. And the turbulent waves don't bother them. The turbulent waves of this age of rage that we're living in should not consume you by watching MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. It should not consume you about Congress or the things that are there. It should not uh, hurt you in terms of looking about what's going on in the news and all those things. You need to be aware of those things. But one thing needs to be true of a child of God is that the more the turbulence comes on the outside, the more that you live in Christ and to see the strength that he has. Now, Paul knew that Ephesus was struggling with that because one of the things about Ephesus is lack of commerce if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Because many times when you worship the goddess Diana, the goddess of fertility, or the other gods that were there, part of the Roman network, there was also in terms of um, the Caesars that you would worship as well. The deity of, of these people eventually died and became gods themselves. And if you did not worship them, you would not be able to get a job. 
you would have a difficult time purchasing things. And you can imagine the anxiety of people, Christians at that time. Listen to these words. He's given you all these wonderful things, and he says, for this reason. I am telling you everything about this. This is verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, disclosure, in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know, and, and that's actually the word of knowing is actually a very intimate word, that you would truly know by experience what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants his prayers. I'm telling you all this not to show you that I'm a master theologian. I'm showing you all this to let you know what an incredible God we have and what he's given to you and to me. And now it is my prayer that your eyes will be opened, that your heart will be inflamed and enlightened, that you would know everything that he's provided for you and me. In the 1940s, I think it was 1942, Conania Farms was established in Georgia. Clarence Jordan, a white minister, started this with a strong belief that blacks and whites should live together. And if you can imagine the times of the 1940s, particularly in Atlanta, Georgia, how difficult that was. And even though he had a PhD in Greek New Testament, he decided instead of pastoring a large Baptist church or to teach at a theological seminary, he decided that he and his wife with partners would begin to start the work at Konania Farms where they do farming and taking care of people and feeding people. And it'd be a community like the early church. It'd be a community that cared deeply for one another regardless of the color of their skin. Now, you can imagine in the 1940s how difficult that was. In fact, the KKK many times would threaten them. There was many times damage that was done. But out of Konea Farms was Habitat for Humanity was started. I don't know if you know that. Out of Konea, the, the Fuller Center, not our Fuller Center, but a wealthy person began to see their wealth meant nothing, and they became part of that. And they began to use their funding to, for other rich people to begin to provide for the needs of other people. In fact, his nephew uh, actually worked for the Carter administration at one time. But he lived during this period of time in the 1940s and 50s and 60s trying to live a life that really believe what Ephesians 1 was all about. Not that you should do that, but he felt God was calling him to do that. He needed a lawyer, and he knew that his best lawyer was actually one of his brothers. But the problem came up is that one of his brothers was actually running to become the justice of the peace and later a state senator. 
and he asked for some help to them. And as he talked to his brother Robert, his brother Robert said these words when Clarence asked him to help. I can't do that. You know my aspirations. In this day and age, I might lose my job, my house, everything that I've achieved. Clarence said, we might lose everything too if you don't do it. And Robert responded, it's different for you. Why? Why, Clarence said, you and I joined the church the same Sunday as boys. The preacher asked, did you accept Jesus, your Lord and Savior? What did you say? And Robert replied, I follow Jesus. I follow Jesus up to a point. And Clarence said, could that point by any chance be the cross? I follow him to the cross, but not on the cross. I'm not getting myself crucified. And then one brother to the other said with a broken heart, then I don't believe you're a disciple. You're simply an admirer of Jesus. You ought to go back to that church you belong to and tell them you're an admirer, not a disciple. And Robert said, well, now, if everyone like me did that, we wouldn't have a church, would we? To which Clarence applied this statement. The question is, do you really have a church? The life that you and I live is not just to see Jesus as a good rabbi or a teacher, but as our Lord and Savior. And if we're going to be successful in living in this age of rage, because I predict by November it's going to get worse everywhere. And if we don't make the difference in that area, if we're admirers, we're not going to make a difference. But if you come to the cross and say, I want to be a disciple, I want to take up my cross and follow him, then this community, this wonderful, beautiful community can change Fullerton or the communities that you live in. It is those things that Konania became so powerful because they wanted disciples of Jesus. By the way, so does the Lord. Amen.